0: Stand clear of the closing doors,
1: please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, fantasy, horror, sci fi, and the just plain weird come
2: together in The Kaleidocast join professor brad overstreet
1: senior junior lecturer sam Spellingbound, and assistant crypto provost don fairweather jenkins of the metatechnic institute and inquisitor james earl king ii
2: as they explore the stories drifting in and out of your reality
3: so how shall we begin this week well what we have here
0: is a lecture from one of our very own here at Fort Greene University's Metatechnic Institute. That sounds splendid. Direct from the Department of Social Anthropomorphology. Wait, what? Assistant Associate Co-Chair, Dawn
3: Fairweather Jenkins. Sam, how could you? Oh, she's not as bad as all that. She's my academic rival. Rival is such a strong word. She tried to have me killed. Ish. Fine. Good. Good. Stab me in the back, just like Dawn Fairweather Fairweather Jenkins.
0: Jenkins. Yeah, I get it.
3: Whatever. The Path That Splits the Oak Asunder by Bradley Robert Parks. The following lecture was recorded at the Brooklyn Metatechnic Institute, June 2015. Assistant Crypto Provost Dawn Fairweather Jenkins, speaking to her Mechanics of Magic 101 class... All other notes inserted to provide clarity for the listener.
1: Welcome, class. Welcome. Let's get started.
3: Claps her hands together, rubs them vigorously.
1: Many of you are, by this time, aware of the incident in the quad. A certain statue of one of our beloved patrons, Mr. Frederick Samuelson, was felled in an incident of linear magic. A few students chuckle nervously. The Dean has asked me to speak to you. Incidents like this are not unknown on this campus and have led to injuries and even death. Fortunately, this one did not. Most of you will never be able to draw enough of a line to do more than give yourself a paper cut. Maybe you should count yourself lucky, if that is the case. It is said that nature abhors a vacuum. I can tell you what nature abhors more. A straight line. Look around. The only straight lines you will see are those that your fellow man has built. A schism of frost, the stab of lightning, even the horizon that slices between earth and sky. All illusions. Look closely enough and the most uniform structure becomes erratic. The line cannot hold. Sooner or later, that must bend, waver, split, or fracture. I'm not telling you that vacuum magic isn't useful. By all means, carry on those studies but if the situation calls for real earth-shaking, panic-inducing, mind-bending display of force, nothing suits the bill like linear magic. In light of this recent incident, I'm moving up the unit on linear magic. But for those with the skill and determination to follow this course to its logical conclusion, I have to first offer a cautionary tale. Clear's Throat In the waning years of the 19th century, The bustling state of California had a vision of a vast and sprawling highway system to replace the meandering cart paths that were causing the growing state a number of headaches. Mr. Frederick Samuelson was one of a handful of commissioners of the early highway system and also one of a handful of magicians well known for his vacuum theory. He was in fact the originator of one of our credos that magic serves as an intermediary between the will of man and the will of nature. He developed the snapback theory that guides our studies in vacuum magic. What you may not realize, for it is not often talked about, was that snapback was what ultimately resulted in Mr. Samuelson's death. While he believed in equilibrium, he also believed in testing boundaries. It should have been painfully obvious to Mr. Samuelson, as it seems to us today, But those were pioneering times. And our beloved Mr. Samuelson was a pioneer. His intention was to save millions of dollars and thousands of hours of labor by applying path-making magic to create a superhighway from San Jose through the mountainous regions of Yosemite National Park and into Nevada.
3: Groans from the class.
1: You groan, but you must consider the times. Also, you must consider Mr. Samuelson's previous successes. I see a few of you are still dubious. Good. His approach was simple enough. He planned to evoke the vital essence of the McKittrick Tar Pits of San Joaquin Valley, commune with the mountain essence of the Tower Peak, and negotiate a blending. Ambitious, right? Especially for those days. Today, we know better than to try to magic our public works into being. Imagine trying to magic a skyscraper out of the ground. General laughter. But in the realm of modern magic, no one had ever tried such a thing. Mr. Samuelson's last few working journal entries contained some very excited but entirely wrongheaded language about a new era of natural manipulation. Here was his mistake, and your object lesson for today. He, being a highwayman first and a wizard second, knew the shortest distance between two points is what? Exactly. A straight line. So he made his evocation and began drawing his path. You know in a vacuum what happens when you draw all the air out of a room. Of course, snapback, destruction. It's a handy way to, for example, put out a kitchen fire or juice an orange. More laughter. But imagine snapback on such a geologic scale. You'll get the whole story in tonight's reading assignment, but I'll summarize for you. His assistant at the time, Miss Lydia Stonybrook gives us this account. She was some distance off, acting as a proxy for the essence of Tower Peak. So, in a way, the mountain tells us what happens when the earth itself snapped back. I think you'll find it fascinating reading. This should give you an idea of Mr. Samuelson's hubris. He made his evocations, then used surveying tools in his path-making magic. His intention was to draw a razor-straight path from his starting point in what is now Yosemite National Park expanding out in either direction to connect San Jose, California, and Rachel, Nevada. From our studies on the magical goings-on behind the supposed alien presence at Area 51, you'll understand the significance of Rachel as an endpoint for Mr. Samuelson's ambitious highway project. Alas, it was not meant to be. The snapback occurred as soon as the path began to form the earthquake was felt from endpoint to endpoint. Miss Stonybrook was fused with the essence of Tower Peak and spent the remainder of her days as a wild woman living on the flank of the mountain she now shared her mind with. Hers is the account you will read in tonight's assignment. The same could not be said of Mr. Samuelson. Seven people died altogether, most notably Mr. Samuelson, who was caught in the folds of the newly formed Melanus Fault. His form was how can I put this delicately, fatally compressed, crushed more accurately. His essence and the essences of the forces he was gathering dispersed into the earth, and some small part of him, through the network they shared, went to Miss Stonybrook. If you're looking for a remnant of this historic event, visit the tunnel tree in the Yosemite National Forest, which fell down in 1969. When the path began to take shape, this famous tree split in half by the unnatural force of the linear path. In the snapback, the tree halves were rejoined, leaving the tunnel, and the tree survived for decades before heavy snow brought it down. To this day, magics bypassed this grove. Other experiments confirmed nature's abhorrence of the straight line, but none with the drama of this one. While we may never determine who brought down the statue of our patron, we hope to prevent any of our students from joining those seven vivisected souls who lost their lives in such a colossal misunderstanding of the forces of magic in nature. Fortunately, we were aided by Mr. Samuelson's extensive notes, which form the foundation of snapback theory, which is where we begin our study of linear magic. So, shall we get started?
0: The path that splits the oak asunder was by Bradley Robert Parks. Bradley Robert Parks writes and lives in Brooklyn, New York, where he founded the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, which can be found at bsfwriters.com. While he's been at this writing thing for a while, the writing group has given him the focus to finally get published. His fiction is forthcoming in BuzzyMag.com, and he also sings in Uptown Express, found at. UptownExpressNYC.org. Amid this flurry of achievement, he's kept grounded by his husband Michael and one cat. Keep up with his exploits on Facebook or at BradleyRobertParks.com.
4: Tanya Ireland McLean lives in Brooklyn, New York, on a street where garbage trucks seem to be driving through 24 hours a day she is not turning up the volume on her TV to max. She is working on a collection of monster time travel stories and a novel she knows people won't use as a doorstop. She can be reached at tanyairelandmaclean at gmail.com
3: Sam, will you see who that is? You're closer to the door. You're already standing up. I'm busy.
4: Fine. Oh, hi, James. Guys, have I got a story for you two? No, absolutely not.
3: Brad. Not after last time. Brad.
4: Not after the wallaby incident. Not after... Okay, 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 stop, stop. What's the story? I met my contact at a dive bar. Uh. The diviest of dive bars. My contact was a blonde redhead brunette. With a lexicon that wouldn't quit. A real code switcher, if you know what I mean. We agreed on a price, and she made herself scarce. That's where the real story starts. Oh, God damn it! No sooner had I turned to leave than I bumped into a real bruiser of a Brooklynite. And let me tell you, he wasn't there on accident. He was there for the story. What happened? Well, let's just say that it takes more than a live, barrel-chested dude bro built like a brick shrubbery to come between me and a story like the Saturday dance. Well, what did you do? Don't encourage him. Well, we sized each other up. He looked at me. I looked at him. And then? Well, uh, long story short, here's an invoice for the mess Cala had to pour down his throat before he forgot all about Ted Mendelssohn. How many piña coladas did he drink? Uh, no. Those are mine.
2: When the Baron died, he died alone. There was no one to lead him over the ground and under the ground and on to the road that leads under the waters. For who would dare guide the guide had he not traveled that way himself many times and over, taking the good and evil, the wise man and the fool, the husband and the wife, but not the children, for they are under the protection of Papa Gede. Who knows what jokes are unfit for the young, all to the land of Guinea to await rebirth or to come again as Guinea themselves. But when Baron Saturday died, he had no one to help him. This is most unexpected and most vexing, said the Byron. Except, of course, that Baron Saturday is quite crude, so what he really said. In the creole of his childhood was, Fuck me blind, I'm fucking dead. Then, Where are my companions? He asked rhetorically. Except, the Byron will only use the word rhetorically some 50 years after the bon Dieu himself retires. So what he really said was, La croix, criminel, Gede, Get the fuck out here, you cock-sucking blue-ass monkeys. And he meant it, for the baron is not subtle, but his fellow giddy did not come. At this, the baron thought that perhaps his wife, Mama Bridgette, with hair of fire and a tongue like a razor, had scared off his boon companions and decided once again that she would no longer tolerate his whorings or his parties that lasted weeks or the large black cigars with which he perfumed the fine marble mausoleum that was her home. But if that were true, Mama Bridget would have been waiting for him, bottle in hand, to offer him a drink of rum with hot peppers, or to break the bottle over his head, depending. And she was nowhere to be seen. All he saw was the dark ground and the midnight sky and the faint rim of light that runs like a band around the horizon of the Pays-Lombraille, the land of shadows, and there was not a house light to be seen, nor a banda song to be heard. The Byron fingered the nine stones on the band of his top hat and the nine twists of the hangman's knot he used for his bow tie and sat down on a boulder with curious veves carved into it. And he pondered. Now, the Byron did not do this willingly, for he is no Simbi or Ogu. He is a Gede. And although he is monstrously clever and can dance the moon to sleep and the sun into the sky and get the earth itself for child. Thinking too deeply makes his head ache. But soon enough, he came to his first conclusion, which was, I am in bad trouble. And then he came to his second conclusion, which was, I will never again gamble with the crafty Boko. And then he came to his third conclusion, which was, Or at least not while I'm drunk. For the Boko, the sorcerer Agri, had summoned him by all the rise of Vodou and invited Saturday to a feast in his honor with all the bourbon rum he could drink and all the fine island girls he could fuck. And what Lois spirit, even a milk-blooded radar. Could refuse an offer like that. So Saturday was well and truly screwed. But being a giddy and the best of them by damn, he did take time to laugh at his own predicament. You are one damn fool, Baron Saturday, he said to himself, chortling all the while. You ride the sorcerer's body like a horse, at his own invitation, no less. And then he waves a spirit bottle in front of you and, and here the baron trailed off because he himself did not precisely remember what the sorcerer had done. What was in that barbecue he had drunk anyway? Well, no matter. He knew that he was dead again, even though death is a tricky thing for the loi, And he knew where he was, at the crossroads. And if there was one place that was Saturday's, it was here. At the gate between the churchyard and the road, the sand and the sea, the moon and the black horizon, here was his power, and here he could call whom he would. First of all, the sorcerer. He rummaged in his pockets and laughed a short, sharp, ha, when he found what he expected, a cow's hoof. At the feast, Agri had never let the baron shake his hand, because Saturday takes with him whatever he has hold of. Instead, trying to be clever, the Boko had offered Saturday the hoof, and hoped the baron would ignore the childish deceit out of politeness. But the hoof itself had belonged to Agri, and for a Gede loa as powerful as the baron, that would be enough. So the Baron traced the outline of a grave in the earth with his skull-topped walking stick and the grave opened wide. He dropped the hoof into the dark moist soil and closed the grave again. Then he pissed on it, muttering all the time and walked three times around it, then he raped the stick upon the ground and yelled, Come up, you shit-stained bitch! Rise! And on the third repetition, the ground shuddered, and there was a moan from the dearth, and Agri sat up with cotton in his nostrils and his lips sewn shut, and a confused look on his face. Even dead, I still got it, laughed Baron Saturday. Right, motherfucker! Then he ripped the binding from Agri's lips so he could speak. When Agri had finished screaming, the baron questioned him long and earnestly about the rite he had performed. Now, the details of the rite, and the meanings behind it, and the veves used, and the drum beats chosen, these are all things that no man knows, because the Gide do not want it to be known, and never will and the Gede can be hotter even and more hasty than the Petroloa, when it comes to the mysteries of death and rebirth. This is as it should be, because after all the rum and the parties and the fucking and the music, the Gede balance death and life, and no one may interfere with that. But what the Baron did learn was almost enough to make him sober. For after the Boko described the wherefore and how of what he had done, the Byron himself, the Saturday man, the king of the graves and the children, could not see a single way out. Saturday's power on earth was broken. He would never again be able to return as a Baron, possessing the willing, protecting the dead, fucking the women until they walked bow-legged, or healing the sick and the victims of witchcraft. No matter how fancy his top hat, how snappy his dead men's suit or smiling skull rings, the dead would no longer recognize him as their guide. Even here at the crossroads, his powers would soon fade until he was no more than a civilian, another mortal soul bound for the world below the waters. But when he asked who had taught Agri this right and why, the sorcerer could do no more than shrug his shoulders, no matter how terrified he was. Well, I need a drink now, said the Byron. After he put Agri back in the ground. But there was no piment to be found, no bourbon cool, not even the cheap rum they served to tourists mixed with fruit juice and sugar the Baron glanced at the horizon. His power would wane with the moon, but until it set, he was still the mightiest of the Gede, and he would know the truth of things. Before the Boko's feast had killed him, Saturday would have just yelled a name, and his Gede would have appeared, cursing, shouting, abusing him in the vilest terms, but always, in the end, obedient. Now the Byron had to draw signs in the earth and sing and kill chickens like a priest. It was humiliating. But he did it. And sure enough, out of the shadows sauntered Gede Nibo, long ivory walking stick a dangled from his wrist long black riding coat a drape around his shoulders, long cigarette lower puffing from his lips. Well, look who it is, peered Gede Nibu. Oh, father, Saturday, you look like shit. And don't I know it, grunted Saturday. Now shut the fuck up and give me to drink. Gedenibo handed Saturday the bottle of white rum and medicinal herbs he carried always and the baron drank it down. So, my son, said baron Saturday, wiping his lipless teeth, still fucking boys? Every night, father. Well, peach, don't catch. Who killed me, my son, and why? Father, I cannot say. And that I tell you thrice. Well, what can you tell me, boy, before the moon sets? I can tell you that I saw my mother weeping. I can tell that Baron Criminel always speaks the truth, even if it is just a scream. And I can tell that everything between the grave and the cunt serves a purpose, even if I do not know precisely what. You are a good boy, Nibu. You will defend the infant dead? Always, my father, and I shall be a voice for the voiceless spirits who have not gone below the waters. Then you are a true gay day, and I bless the day we adopted you. Saturday always grins, but he grinned extra wide at Nibo, and Nibo faded back in the shadows. Then Saturday stood and stretched his bones until they rattled and cracked and summoned the next loa. Baron Criminel appeared with a shriek, his bag of heads bouncing on his belt, an army of zombies at his back, even taller and leaner than Saturday himself. Criminel leaped like a jaguar, bony fingertips clawing at Saturday's eyes. Saturday stepped back, dropped to one knee, and brought the head of his walking stick up into Criminel's scrotch. Criminel fell, shrieking, And Saturday took a running start and kicked him in the face. He leaned down and pulled the bag of heads from Criminal's belt and waited. "'Steal your boss, bitch,' said Saturday. "'Until the moon sets, should I kick you again?' Criminal whined through bloody gums and clutched for the bag. Saturday dangled it just out of reach. "'Speak up, Penda, said Saturday. "'Who set you on me?' Who said I agree on you? Now, Baron Criminel is the leg breaker of the Gede. He collects the debts owed to them on the 2nd of every November. And not even Baron Saturday will fuck with him for too long. But Saturday has wondered many a time how so stupid a loi, even for a Gede, kept all the debts straight in his head before the Fed Gede each year. So Saturday kicked him again, and again, and one more time, and rolled Criminel over on his side, and went through the pockets of Criminel's long coat of skins, never you mind skins of what, and Saturday found what he expected to find, a creased black handbook filled with names and dates. Then he kept the book and kicked Criminel away into the shadows without it, and that is why... To this very day, some foolish vaudouisins think they can beg favors of the gay day and hope to be overlooked comme de fait. And each year, they discover their mistake. So the Byron sat on the crossroad stone once more and read through the ragged handbook. It was filled with figures and sums, and many pertinent facts about his fellow Lois, bright facts and dark. Saturday was interested indeed, for these facts could cement his place among the Gede, and the Gede's place among the Loa, if only he could escape what was coming. But he had just until the moon set, and the handwriting was cramped and crabbed, and the secret signs and verves in this book were enough to make Saturday's head ache. So he paged ahead looking for a clue. To his current predicament then he found what he feared he would find and he chuckled again for he was a fucking gay day, and he would laugh at anything but his laugh had a melancholy sound for the third time Saturday called on a loi, but this time he did not summon and he did not drum and he did not sacrifice like a priest because a man does not cast a spell or lead a service for his own wife. Instead, he built a bonfire and called his wife's name. Brigitte! Brigitte! Get your ass out here, you milk-white, blood-haired bitch! And sure enough, Mama Brigitte stepped out of the flames, pale and red-haired and green-eyed, but with her usual sharpness stuck away like the blade of a pocket knife. Hello, Saturday, she said calmly. Hello, my ass, said the Byron, like we're strangers on a street. Woman, why did you kill me? And Mama Bridget looked down. I knew it, said the Byron. Why else would your name be in criminal's book? Was it that waitress in Port-au-Prince? No. Those twins in Petionville with the big tits. You got angry over them. Don't be silly. I told you, woman, I like you skinny. Big tits, I can get anywhere. It wasn't a woman, you foolish man. She cried in vexation. You think I can't find some men of my own when I want to coin? Saturday's eyes widened behind his dark sunglasses that filled hand and baton rouge, I knew it. Yes, yes, and that taxi driver whose sister that had the mighty ass. And that skinny student on the team at university. I bet you did it right on the court. He stepped closer to Mama Brigitte, towering over her, and his shadow spread out behind him. Tell me, woman, he glared down at her. Did he have a bigger zozo than me? And Mama Bridget laughed, even though her bottled green eyes were red and puffy, and then they were in each other's arms. After a fair while, when the Byron had tucked himself back in, and Mama Bridget had rearranged her skirts, the Byron looked up at the sky, and he saw the moon dwindling to the horizon. The time is coming, woman, he said. Don't let me die in ignorance. Mamma Bridget nodded, and then she was a true queen of the giddy, hard as stone, fierce as night, fertile as black grave soil. I killed you, my love, because nothing lives forever, not even the lois. That's a lie, he said, before he could stop himself. But even as he denied it, He remembered the thousand, thousand times he himself had said the same thing to the men and women on their final trip to Guinea. He had said it as consolation, but had he truly meant it? He was Gede after all. They might mislead or trick or dupe, but no Gede would outright lie over death and life. No, he said, it's true. I just never thought it meant me. Did I not die already? Have not all the Gede done so? He sank onto the stone, amazed once more. How could I forget that? Was there a spell? Am I mad? Bridget sat next to him and stroked his bony cheek. You forgot what you had to forget. To lead the Gede. To dance the banda to travel the road to Guinea and back, over and over again, to face grieving children and barefoot parents. How could you remember their sorrow, feel their pain? For a year you would be the greatest of the Lois, beloved for all your passion, and for another year you would struggle to do what was right. And in the third year, weighed down by the sorrows of others, seeing decay and the corruption of flesh from moonrise to moonrise, you would go mad, and a maddened loi is a terrible thing. I hear the wisdom of it, said Saturday, but I don't feel it. Mama Bridget nodded, because you did not remember, and now you will. She touched his forehead gently with one finger and Saturday remembered. He remembered toiling in the fields, cutting sugar cane under the equatorial sun. He remembered the moments of pleasure with his woman, his mortal woman, and the joy of seeing his first child even though she was a girl. He remembered the long years of fear, struggling to earn enough food to keep his daughters safe from the Kanai and his sons from the thieves and assassins. Standing over his sons, determined that they learned their letters so their lives could be better, seeing all the work, all the life washed away on the back of a great storm, and being an old man used up at 34. He remembered being killed while blind drunk by the boss during an argument shot dead by a man on a horseback. He crumbled to the ground, weeping, and he knew that Bridget was right. She crouched over him, stroking the smooth bone of his head where once there had been hair and flesh. Papa Gede chose you because you were a good man, she said, because you had spent your life afraid, but doing what was necessary... You would never be a baron criminel, or a smoothie like Lacroix, uncaring and untouched, and you deserved some time to be happy before Guinée. Saturday laughed loud, a laugh that sounded like a gasp. Yes, woman, because I'm so damned happy now. Your cimetière, where you were the first man buried, was destroyed by the great earthquake, She continued. So your time as a Byron had ended. We sent the Boko to distract you and did what was needful. This was never to be your final resting place. Saturday sat up slowly and clutched his head for he was now both mortal spirit and Gede and the clash between the two was like snorting a handful of pepper flakes the day after a drunk. So now I go on to Guinea. He said, what happens there? Is it paradise, hell, or just a fancy word for nothing at all? Bridget shrugged. How do I know? My Tom is not yet. I am here to carry out the laws of Gede, and they say your time is up. Saturday stood. It was a hard thing to see your life whole, your sorrows like a milestone, your pleasure's nothing more than a handful of pennies in recompense. And then to walk alone to a place that you did not even know. He ran the hand across his face, half expecting the dark, creased flesh that had once been his, but feeling only the bone of a gede. And with that, he remembered being the Byron. He remembered the dead with whom he had walked joking with the men flirting with the women breaking the stiffness of even the most pompous so that they were laughing and grinning by the time they reached the road's end he remembered them all their names and faces the farmers and fishermen mothers and peddlers potters and mumbles and nurses and scoundrels whether worn out by care or rejoicing on the way, but always happy to have someone to talk to, he remembered breaking hexes and saying, I will dig no grave for you to the victims of witches and sorcerers and turning the bad intentions of the priests of the left-hand way back against them. And below the self-satisfaction of the giddy, beneath the pain of his mortal years, he felt grateful. Walking alone was a damned hard thing, but maybe he could do it, and maybe, really, he was not alone. Baron Saturday stood straight and laughed. Will you come with me a ways, woman? Bridget looked away. No. Saturday grinned. Well, piss on you, then. He stretched his arms wide, and his voice ran through the dirt like an earthquake. What about you, my brothers and fathers, cousins and sons, Lacroix, Nibo, Brave Gede, who will walk with me, any of you? He waited a moment. The night gleamed with eyes and was filled with rustling. As of a thousand, thousand patent leather shoes scuffing shamefully on the wooden floor of a dance hall, but nothing else. He turned slowly to face all of them, degree by degree. I was born Ewan, in the land beyond the waters. And then my name was Jean in the fields. And now my name is Saturday. But what I am is Gede, so fuck all of you, up your assholes. Watch me walk, bitches. He grinned wide at all of them and blew a kiss at Mama Bridget. He raised his right hand and said, I'm going to need my fucking rum. And Papa Gede, short and dark, in the tallest top hat of the family, walked out with a prime bottle of Burma cool in which 21 of the hottest peppers in the islands had been steeped. He handed it to Saturday, pulled him down, and kissed him on both his bony cheeks. Saturday raised his left hand and said, And I want a better pair of sunglasses, you fuckers. And Mama Bridget handed him a beautiful pair of ravens. With the left lens knocked out, because the baron now saw with the eyes of man and Gede. He kissed her once, with plenty of tongue, and grabbed her ass, and the Gede yelled and hooted and whistled. Then he shoved her away and straightened his coat. Now give me my fucking cigar, make it a presidente. And Nibo came out with the lit cigar and said quietly, I will walk with you, my father saturday said you take one step with me and i'll kick your ass you've got boys to fuck and work to do and he shoved Nibo away as well then he extended his long bony finger and swept it across the gate day like a fire hose and said where i'm going you all will be i'll see you in guinea bitches then he snapped his fingers, and from the last of his magic, the Bunda music started to play. And Baron Saturday did the pelvic thrust and grabbed his crotch all the way down to the land beneath the waters.
0: Ted Rabinowitz is a graduate of Columbia University and USC's School of Cinema Arts. Ted has also worked as an electrician, speechwriter, and professional card player. His first novel, The Wrong Sword, was published in 2012 under the name Ted Mendelson. The Saturday Dance first appeared in Lore magazine in 2013. Ted currently lives in New York,
3: where he works as a copywriter and story consultant. Narrator Agnes Anglade is currently a student at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy in New York City working toward a BFA in performing arts. She is originally from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where she performed lead roles in Aladdin, The Lion King, and Dracula. She is currently working on her first off-Broadway show, which she is very excited about. You can follow her on Facebook by searching for Aurelie Anglade, spelled A-U-R-E-L-I-E-A-N-G-L-A-D-E, or on Instagram at O-R-E-A-U-R-E-L-I-E. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Our sound engineers are Atticus Ryan Garten, Alicia Barrett, and Matt Mozzarella. Your hosts are Tanya Ireland-McLean as Dawn Fairweather-Jenkins, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act Two, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Special thanks go out to Marcy Arlen. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. Go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and for links to all our contributors.